Take your scriptures and turn to Genesis 37. In the spirit of the holidays, that's the season we're in. I didn't want to just parachute right back to the first John study where he's talking about antichrists among us. It, just, it seemed forced, honestly. And so I want to take another week. Sean preached last week. And I want to take another week this morning to focus on really in such an odd and crazy year, uh, the, the theme of thankfulness. The Bible is filled with stories of people. Okay, you got all kinds of people connected to the story, or we would say the larger redemptive narrative of Jesus Christ, who also became one of those people in the Bible. He became a man. God loves his world of people. The scripture is not just a collection of definitions and explanations. Sometimes I think we desire it to read like an encyclopedia. Just let me look up this word or this situation or this standard and tell me what to do. But God didn't do it that way. It's not simply sterile truth delivered in a vacuum. And the reason is, and, and God probably designed the scripture the way he did, because he knows humanity identifies with humanity. We identify with Jonah. We identify with David. Okay, we identify, people identify with other people. Their life, their events, their struggles. We relate to the stories of events and other people. Jesus' teaching was filled with people. Okay, I'm just going to say a few, and even our children should, should recognize them. Uh, the Good Samaritan, a prodigal son, a woman who loses a coin, laborers in a vineyard, and a shepherd who goes to find a lost sheep. Right? Many of us were taught these stories as children. The story of Abraham and Isaac. Right? He takes his son up the mount. Or of Moses and Pharaoh. Or of Ruth and Boaz. The kids are like, Ruth and Boaz? Yeah, it's a love story in your Bible. Okay? Not as popular as David and Goliath, but probably a little more gentle. Okay? And, and a beautiful story of God's redemption. Uh, Jonah and the... Who said whale? It, it, at least it's a great fish. But no, Jonah and the Ninevites, folks. It's, we always forget chapter 4, don't we? We always focus on the fish. Uh, but all of these incredible truths about God, His world, and His plan through people. We're people. Okay, so we identify with these events. We are now in the holiday season. It's been a different kind of year. So it's going to be a different kind of holiday season for most of us. A lot has changed. And I want to consider sort of this one phrase out of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is the phrase. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So with 2020 in view, give thanks in all circumstances. So what is God's will then? Sometimes we ask this. What is the will of God? What is God's will when we find ourselves in the tough moments and difficult seasons of life? Giving thanks in all circumstances. Okay, that, that means when 2020 unravels, when our child seems to have no interest in following the Lord, or when sickness arrives personally, or when a darker season of life descends like a thick fog, give thanks in all circumstances. 
Now, with regard to that, and, and you don't have to turn there because I've just read it several times, word for word. With regard to giving thanks in all circumstances, there's a little tiny two-letter word we often miss. And it's not a three-letter word. It's not for all things, all circumstances. It's the word in. Okay? Giving thanks in all circumstances. This is, by the way, this is not just semantics. Okay, because the difference will help remove a frustration. Because it would be odd, even superficial and repulsive, if we went around being thankful for evil. God never asked us to do that. It would be ridiculous for a parent to go around being thankful for the evil that has touched their child. Okay, that's not godly. It's not impressive. It's not Christian. What we can do, though, is be thankful in those situations and circumstances because of what we know. And by the way, this delivers us from feeling like even though we're suffering physically or emotionally or relationally or spiritually, we don't need to go around just parroting the Christian cliches that God's good, even though you're, you're obviously physically in darkness. Okay, the scripture removes that pressure off of you from being that kind of hypocrite. But we can be thankful in them because of what we as believers know about God. And it's interesting that when the Bible says to be thankful for something, it often says this. And you'll see this in First Chronicles, several places, Ezra, several Psalms. It says this, oh, give thanks to the Lord for what do you think it says? For he is good. And don't we forget that in darkness and in suffering? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. See, we can be thankful in all circumstances because of what we know about God. And it's not just facts about God. It's not just that podcast I just listened to was so interesting, or I just finished the next lesson in my Bible study. No, what we know about God is that he is sovereign and wise and good and active and just and a very present help in trouble. And I believe that the Joseph narrative demonstrates this clearly. That's why I've asked you to turn to Genesis 37. Joseph faced situations that were unfair, traumatic. This is ch true childhood trauma. Just listen to the small list. He was bullied by all of his older brothers, thrown into a pit that he couldn't get out of by himself, sold to strangers to be taken to another country, where he was falsely accused and thrown into a prison in North Africa and separated long-term from his caregivers. That's the story, that's the narrative of Joseph. But he could be thankful in those situations. Why? Okay, and I'm going to just put forward, and again, this is a different kind of sermon than what we normally do, but where we go verse by verse by verse, word by word by word sometimes. But I'm just going to give you seven reasons why we can give thanks in all circumstances from the account of Joseph. Now, the account of Joseph stretches from chapter 37 to what chapter? Chapter 50. Okay, this is the first book in your Bible. And, and the story, the narrative of Joseph takes up 13 chapters. There's sort of a there's sort of a sidestep in the narrative of Joseph. So 13 to 14 chapters in the first book of your Bible. It is very important. 
Chapter 37 sets the stage for all that is to come. It is the preparation stage. So no surprise, there are several important lessons as God is preparing this man for the work that wouldn't happen until after deportation, if you would, and imprisonment. But he's in that preparation stage. And I'm looking out here and some of you are in this preparation stage. Okay, look at, look at Genesis 37, verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Look at what it says. He was a boy. Okay, that is our introduction to Joseph. He's a teenager. He's young. He's tender. He's immature. He's inexperienced. He still needs people guiding him. Look at verse 2 again. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. That is one of the triggers that is going to sort of fire off all the events that now transpire all the way through Genesis chapter 50. Here's another trigger. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, who is what patriarch? Okay, Jacob. Okay, he's one, of the, he's one of the key guys okay, that are often referred back to. Even in the New Testament, you hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, sort of that formula. Um, here's another trigger that ultimately harmed his own son. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now the robe, and I want to make this note, is more than decorative. It's, it's not serving just an aesthetic purpose. There's a functional purpose to this robe. And the function is that, that Jacob has now placed his youngest son as an overseer. It comes with power and status. The robe was suited for an overseer rather than a laborer. Look at verse 4. Here's another trigger. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. Okay, just pause for a second. Children and siblings are not blind to favoritism. Okay, when they saw that, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, at this point in the narrative, we're only a few verses in, four verses in, who do we relate more with? Is it Jacob? Is it Joseph? Probably for most of us, it's who? The brothers, right? The brothers. We've, this is unfair. This is not right. This is not just. Okay, that's how life seems. At least the youngest is coddled. How many of you have seen the baby siblings sort of coddled and nurtured and protected? And he doesn't get as many corrections, if we would say, as, as the older children got. Okay, at least that's what's happening here in the narrative so far. And it's also worth noting this fact at this point. This is a tension point in the story. One of the, one of the triggers is the father's what? His love. Yes, favoritism, but it's his love and it's not a misplaced love. He should love Joseph, but it is a disproportioned love that is not given to all of the, of the sons and the children equally. Now, amidst this parental favoritism and sibling tension, I want you to look at verse five, because Joseph has two dreams. And unfortunately, <laughs> he shares them with his brothers. OK, probably at 17, he couldn't see the effect that that was going to have. Okay, look at verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they what? They hated him even more. Look at verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? 
because that's what the colored robe and that's what the dreams are insinuating. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You know, we're only we're only four verses into the Joseph narrative, but we can see why we can give thanks in all circumstances, partly because we also have chapter 50, don't we? We see the whole story. We don't see our own life like that. I don't know what chapter we're in in our own life. But we have the whole book, if you would, of Joseph. And so we can give thanks in all circumstances. Here's why. Reason number one, because our sovereign God is bigger than parental favoritism and family failures. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than an absentee dad or an angry dad. He's bigger than, you know, a controlling mom. He's bigger than all of that. Matter of fact, God designs for you to realize that your parents aren't perfect so that you don't set them up as a false messiah. That Jesus Christ alone is the one to save. Let's consider a second reason. And this is really connected to that first reason. It springs out of it. But this is the second reason. Every detail is under God's sovereign control. And let me add to that. And therefore is used for his purposes. Every detail is. And his purposes cannot be frustrated by our actions and choices. So the story continues to develop. Jacob not only dressed Joseph as an overseer, but placed him in authority. Look at chapter 37, verse 13. And Israel, again, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Probably dressed in his robe of oversight, he goes to visit his brothers who already despise him. By the way, what happens now is is the beginning of very sad events in Joseph's life. Because worldly reasoning would say this. and, And by the way, there was worldly reasoning all the way back in the Garden of Eden before sin. There's worldly reasoning at this point in Joseph's life and worldly reasoning, worldly logic, secular thinking says this, get rid of the problem and it will go away. Right. Remove it, run away from it or attack it. And that's exactly what the brothers are going to try to do. But here's what we know as believers. Our greatest problems aren't around us. My greatest problem is not another person or it's not a a set of circumstances It's my own sinful depravity. Matter of fact, Jesus taught this in Mark 7. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, wickedness, pride, and foolishness. He gives this long list. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Well, believers can give thanks in all circumstances because every detail is under God's sovereign control and therefore used for his purposes. Let's consider a third. Look at Genesis 37, verse 28. Let me give you you the third reason and then then we'll unpack it. Transitions, unexpected moves, abrupt turns, and life changes are all part of God's leading in our necessary journey. How many of you have experienced this year a transition, an unexpected move, an abrupt turn, or a life change? Right. Okay. So we we could say this and maybe in our modern vernacular that, you know, Joseph's about to come up to his 2020 moment. Right. 
in life. Uh, look at verse 28, Genesis 37. Uh, then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up. Of course, we didn't go through the whole narrative of them being thrown in the pit, right? And what's going to happen? Um, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. They probably had to do it because the brothers had no interest in bringing him back out of the pit. They threw him down there to die. Joseph could not have gotten out of the pit on his own. Okay, these traders, very clever, very prepared, equipped. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Okay, and the brothers go back home. They concoct a cruel lie that Joseph was killed by an animal. Okay, meanwhile, you keep seeing these words, these timing words in this narrative. Meanwhile, the Midianites were in verse 36 had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, his story keeps unfolding. Some of the details in his life are simply just the messy stuff of life. Matter of fact, if we took it out of the life of Joseph, listen to some of the things that we're already confronting. Family friction. Sibling rivalry. Parental favoritism. Jealousy. Hatred, lies, clothing, foreign entities, strange customs and cultures, unexpected and unplanned twists and turns in life. It's all right here in Genesis 37 to 50. The overall story tells us this. God is at work and leading, not outside of the details, but in and through the messy details of life. Therefore, believers can give thanks in You're not going to be thankful for being thrown down into a pit. And you're not going to be thankful for being delivered to foreigners to be taken to another country. That's ludicrous. And on your way up, 17-year-old Joseph isn't saying, well, praise God, I know he's good. He's probably not saying that. He's hurt. He's fearful. I mean, he's a real man. But God is at work through the messy details of life. We can give... Thanks to God in all circumstances because transitions, unexpected moves, abrupt turns, life changes are all part of God's leading in our necessary journey. And God is doing that exact same thing with this year for us. Number four, turn to Genesis chapter 38. And this story really isn't about Joseph at all. God's plan is bigger than surrounding failures. Okay, Genesis, Genesis 38 seems like an interruption to the Joseph account. Okay, it's, it's a snapshot of what takes place back in Canaan during this time, especially concerning the life of Judah, who is Joseph's half-brother. In verses 1 to 6, if you just glance down at it, you will see Judah's marriage to a Canaanite woman. In verses 7 to 10... Really quick, you zoom in again, Judah's wicked sons. In verses 12 to 26, this is where the brunt of the material lands, is Judah's relationship with his daughter-in-law. Okay, We're not going to go into detail on that story, but what happens here is, is Genesis 38 seems like a colossal shipwreck or an ugly wart on the face of redemptive history. Right. All this is also beautiful. And then you're like, oh, and you turn away when you read Genesis 38 and you're wondering, why is that even there? Because we're, we're just sort of following the life details of Joseph and then 
boom, you're almost accosted with Judah. Genesis 38 is what church members gossip about over lunch. And yet it's right here for you to read, for you to learn from. And and you sort of get to the end of that chapter and you're like, what did I just read? I thought this was a patriarch or at least one of the tribe, tribal leaders. And if you go all the way forward and you don't don't turn there, I'll read it for you. In Revelation 5, 5, John is writing, right? One of the apostles. And he says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Remember, there was no one there to open the scroll. Who? What person? What person in all of redemptive history from Genesis 1 until now? What person is worthy? And John cries. And an angel says, or one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of... Wait a minute, who? Not, wait a minute, something... That can't be right. Judah? Didn't you read Genesis 38? That's the line out of which Messiah comes? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In the New Testament, I mean, you've seen in the New Testament, Jesus is touching lepers. He's forgiving prostitutes. This is the redemptive historical line of the Messiah. That is a snapshot of the gospel right there, tucked into Genesis, Genesis 38, of who your Savior King really is. Believers can give thanks in all circumstances because God's plan is bigger than surrounding failures. That does not mean there are no consequences for our choices or pain of regret, but it does mean that God's plan is bigger then surrounding failures and even our individual failures. Think Adam and Eve. Think Abraham. Think Moses. He wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. Think David. Think Jonah. Think Peter. Think Thomas. God's plan is bigger than surrounding failures. Number five. Turn to Genesis 39. The fifth reason we can give thanks in all circumstances is that God's presence compels us in trials and temptations. Now, it's obvious God used Joseph's captivity for good. Okay, look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. The Lord, verse 3, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 5. For Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he, Potiphar, had in house and field. He's already in captivity, even though he's in a domestic setting. But something's going to happen in this domestic setting that is going to place him. Basically, it's going to it's going to double his captivity. He's going to go from captivity in Egypt to captivity in a prison in Egypt. So you have this double captivity. And in some ways, the domestic setting was more dangerous For Joseph than the actual cell in an Egyptian prison. Potiphar's wife presented Joseph an opportunity to do wrong. Why should Joseph resist at this point? I want you to answer that in your mind. Why should Joseph at this point have have the kind of God awareness that he does? He was rejected by his brothers. 
sold as a slave, traumatically separated from his parents, lied about. He's in a foreign country. Nobody's watching him. Nobody really cares what he does. He's an outsider and he's already seeing this blessing of being in captivity. Why doesn't he, and I speak as a fool, at what point does he just walk away from God who seems to have walked away from him? Do you have an answer for that? Look at his response in verse 9, Genesis 39. Remember, he's alone. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, being thankful in all things is connected to an acute awareness of God's presence. We know the story. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, resulting in imprisonment. Yet God used it for good. As a matter of fact, Stephen, just before they pick up rocks and kill him, Stephen says this in his final sermon. He says in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Because of Joseph's acute awareness of God's presence in his life, he was able to experience that rescuing of him out of all his afflictions. So from overseer, right, to captivity, to overseer, to captivity. Let me read you a larger portion, verse, beginning in verse 21, Genesis 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Even in captivity, God is blessing him. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Listen to this. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Believers can give thanks in all circumstances because God's presence compels us in trials and temptations. And even in those sort of circumstantial imprisonments, he can bless us right in that moment. Number six, God does not forget even when others do. Look at Genesis 40, verse one. You realize a lot of life is being lived in between the verses, right? Sometime after this, right? We measure our life by seconds or minutes or maybe days, weeks at the most. Uh, the Genesis narrative is event-oriented, not, not necessarily time-oriented. Look at verse 2 of Genesis 40. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. Okay, God designed this. Not, not a small providential detail. God allows the, 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 the leader of the world's superpower of its day to become very angry, an unbeliever, with two other Probably unbelievers. He's designing this so that his plan unfolds. He was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison. Oh, look at this little providential detail. There's not just one prison here in, in, in this area of the world. But they put him in, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Look at verse 4. Genesis 40. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time 
in custody. Not, not again, not a small providential detail. Look at verse 5, Genesis 40. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison. Both of them had similar dreams, very different endings. Well, Joseph's awareness of God allows him to say this in verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? And he doesn't mean just any of the Egyptian gods, but to Yahweh? Here is Joseph, seemingly forgotten in a foreign prison, but Joseph was aware, he knew God enough that he was present in the small details, in the seconds and the minutes of his life. To the cupbearer, Joseph said, of course, he's the one that survives, right? The baker, you remember the dream he had, right? And the birds are coming down and eating the bread, which is not really bread, right? In reality, I'll let you read that, that story. That was the, the PG version, okay? So, I mean, it's just a, it's a gruesome account of what happens. Well, here, the baker's now passed on, and the cupbearer is alive. And this is what Joseph says to him in verse 14. Only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. Okay, the confinement, the prison. Verse 23, this is so much like life. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Not the most encouraging detail of the sermon this morning, but people will let you down. Okay, this is one of the guarantees of life. By the way, that's not cynicism. I'm not just jaded with life, right? I'm not in a midlife crisis. Um, this is reality. People will let you down. And that's why we don't always have to give thanks for all circumstances. Yes, all things work together for good to those who love God. But we can be thankful in all circumstances because God is above those. God never forgets even though others do. Genesis 41, verse 1. Look at, look at what it says again. Now, it, it doesn't just say after some time or meanwhile. Look at what it says. I mean, the cupbearer forgets. That was his golden opportunity. After two whole years. Okay. Delayed pause for effect. Two whole years. And now Pharaoh has a dream. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, why then? Because that's God's design. It wasn't supposed to happen a minute earlier. It was supposed to happen at this exact time. Joseph was exactly where God wanted him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us. Guy doesn't even remember his name, even though Joseph took care of him. A servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Right? Life has been the pits for Joseph. Literally. Genesis 41, verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh. Listen again to his acute God awareness. 
It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph continues to set his affections Godward in glorifying God. Look at verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, what God is about to do. Verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This is no longer the 17-year-old Joseph. He's grown, he's experienced, he's faced the harsh realities of life. But even even though he's faced so many difficult things, he continues to believe in God. Okay, full circle divine design. Look at verse 46 of Genesis 41. Joseph was how old? 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember verse 39, verse 2? Being 17 years old, he was a boy. Basically, I mean, you do your simple math. This path took 13 years, but the famine won't reach its peak for another nine years. Okay, Genesis 45, verse 6. More than 20 years after the altercation with his brothers. Look at verse 40. Look at verse 50 of Genesis 41. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. And I love this. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. I want you to look at the definition. This has meaning. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. He's not thankful that he's forgetting his family, but the hardship and the events that led him to the place he is at right now. The name of the second son he called Ephraim. Look at the definition. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You know, God can do that. Believers can give thanks in all circumstances because God does not forget even when others do. And finally this morning, the seventh reason, our sovereign God intends good because he is good. Most of you are already familiar with the story of they go to buy grain. Joseph's there. He looks very Egyptian. He's speaking their language. He's following their customs. They have no idea who it is. He eventually reveals himself. Okay, of course, they, they track. They try to protect the youngest son now because the brothers are still wondering if, if Benjamin isn't favored. Of course, there's so many in, incredible, sovereign, interesting, amazing details in this account as it unfolds. But in the end, I want you to look at Genesis 50, verse 20. After all that happens, Joseph says to them, as for you, these are the brothers, the catalyst, the trigger of all this difficulty. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had no idea as a 17 year old, as a 23 year old, as a 30 year old, that that's what God was doing. But he kept believing in God through the difficulty through the trials, and through the suffering. Um, in, his, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller says this, God will allow evil only to the, the, the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. See, Satan uses evil to destroy and to kill and to steal. God allows evil to prove, to test, to refine, to exalt. Again, he, Tim Keller said this, God will allow evil 
only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. Look at the very last verse of Genesis. It is striking. Genesis 50, verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Close the story on Joseph. 110 full years of life, joy and grief, exhilarating opportunities and boredom, no doubt, in prison, satisfaction and disappointment. But notice what else this verse says. It doesn't just say 110 years. A coffin in Egypt. Death, not life. A coffin in Egypt, North Africa, not in his homeland. And, and, and we could reason, sure, he delivered nations from famine, but, but what did Joseph's death then set the stage for? Slavery? You just keep reading into the next book. Abuse? Hardship? And isn't that how life appears sometimes? But it's only a seeming contradiction, a visible paradox, not the full reality, because keep reading. You keep reading in the account of the Exodus, and what you have is signs and wonders in Egypt, the confrontation with Pharaoh, Yahweh's power displayed. You have the Passover, which is salvation and safety by the shedding of blood. You have the Exodus, which is miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. And then you have the formation of a nation. We're living right now in this moment. It's almost like we're all 17-year-old Josephs. We're trying to interpret the facts of what God is doing. But that, that is why the Apostle Paul could tell the believers at Thessalonica, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can do that because God is good and sovereign. James 1, 2 to 4 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, and by the way, that's painful when that happens, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Really, all these events are moving us towards then the Messiah, Jesus Christ. One of the most traumatic Horrifying events in all of history, and yet what did, it, what did it accomplish? It did accomplish the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of sin, and hope. Not just hope now, but hope for eternity. That's where this redemptive story is moving. That is where Joseph is moving. Therefore, regardless of what our little personal circumstance is right now, okay, emotionally, or relationally, or even spiritually, we can give thanks in all circumstances because of what we know to be true about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.